was there a point where you're like, maybe I'll just let this this uh, batch go, or you decided like, no, I, I you, once you see them, you have to try. Yeah, I, there was maybe a moment where I was like, how am I going to do this? But I thought I, I can't not try. We learn from every attempt. So it was the coolest thing the first morning when I turned on that light and got to see them, literally see them shed and pop out those claws. So you're actually actively watching them transition through those yeah. phases. So. Yeah. Well, first I'll say congratulations because you are in a very small number of people basically in history that have ever done this. Do you know how many people have done it? It's got to be less than 20, right? Yes. Yeah. So we're third in the United States. That's amazing. And um, I've been told 12th in the world. Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. So today we have a returning guest on the podcast. That is Darcy Madsen of Crab Central Station. If you remember last year, we released an episode, and I think it was July of 2021 or maybe June of 2021. Happens to be one of the most popular episodes ever released on this podcast. So if you haven't listened to that, I want you to go back and listen to that first because it's somewhat of a prereq before we get into this conversation. I don't delve into some of the details that I know we talked about on the first episode. So if you listen to this one first, you may be a little bit confused about some of the terminology that Darcy uses. So go back and listen to that one. And then you should have a good foundation to jump into this episode. Last time we discussed the plight of the hermit crab, how they are abused in the pet keeping industry and really just treated like souvenirs and how to care for them properly. Of course, we covered that. And then we discussed the breeding projects that Darcy and her two daughters, Faith and Brooke, were getting themselves into, which is an absolutely insane amount of work. Now we brought them back on because they were actually successful from our last conversation. So between last summer when we recorded and now they have had a successful breeding of hermit crabs, which makes them one of 12-ish people in the entire history of the globe to have ever bred hermit crabs in captivity because it is an incredible laborious task that is super finicky. And we do get into that in this episode as well. So this, every time I talk to Darcy, my mind is blown at the amount of dedication that these crab people have when it comes to these projects. It's really incredible. And Darcy and her daughters are absolutely no exception. The amount of work that they did to make this happen is amazing. So we discussed the breeding crab or the, the captive breeding project that they did, how it was successful, the mistakes they made in the past and what they've changed and how you bring crabs from a tiny microscopic egg and zoe all the way up to an actual land crab. It's a remarkable story. And I know you will enjoy this just as much as you enjoyed the last one. Before we jump into the episode, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you will find links to everything mentioned in today's episode, as well as any other episode that has been recorded up until this point. You can also find a link to the store if you do want to buy yourself a t-shirt or sweater. $5 is automatically donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. And if you are interested in supporting the podcast monetarily, you can join us over on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join us and you will have automatic access to the Discord server. There we just have just myself and the listeners of the podcast 
chat raft house. It's a lot of fun. So if that is something that you're interested in, you can join us there. Every dollar does really, really help. As I've talked about many times uh, up until the last few, few episodes, I'm starting to outsource my editing, which does cost money. So any way you can help is greatly appreciated. And thank you so much to customreptilehabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. There is an affiliate link in both the YouTube description and the show notes. If you do use that link and make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you, which of course helps me produce the show. Enjoy the episode. All right. Well, Darcy, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you. I will say it's funny because obviously the podcast I do is mostly in the reptile world. I I branch out into other exotic or specialized pets once in a while. And funnily enough, the episode that you and I recorded last summer or last spring, whenever it was, is the most popular episode that I've ever recorded. (laughs) And especially the last six weeks for whatever reason YouTube or the YouTube gods decided that everybody needed to see this and it's been getting like hundreds of views a day up to like two or three thousand views a day it's crazy so in the I think in the last it's oh I should have checked before it's around 40,000 views and that 20,000 of those or more happened in the last six weeks or so so it's crazy but this is a perfectly timed episode then so it's amazing Yes, I'm so excited. Um, I know we've had some weather things kind of get in between, you know, Texas is crazy in the spring, but I mean, we are just so excited to be back on the podcast. Thank you for inviting us. And we're so um, excited to share our news. Yeah, there's some pretty amazing things happening on your end. So why don't you bring us back up to speed real quick? I imagine most people will have listened to the first episode, but if they didn't, you had just finished. Well, actually, why don't we just start with a review of, of who you are, your the, the projects you're working on, and then and then we'll get into the build behind you. Um, hello, my name is Darcy Madsen. I am a co-content creator um, for a YouTube channel called Crab Central Station, which um, my two daughters and I created. Um, back in 2017, we were at a family vacation um, in Puerto Rantis, and my daughter decided that she wanted a hermit crab as a souvenir. Strange that they would sell live pets as souvenirs, but they do. And so, um, you know, we got some basic information about how to care for them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm making this very summed up, but, you know, basically, you know, they gave us the care recommendations and the supplies that we would need to take care of the hermit crab um, without doing any additional research on our part, which we have now, of course, learned that that was not a good idea. Um, and so we impulse bought these very first hermit crabs, thinking that they were easy to care for. Uh, they were inexpensive and we were under the impression that they were a short-term commitment because we were told they wouldn't actually live that long. Um, shortly after getting our new friends back to the beach house we were staying at, um, Brooke started doing some research because she just really enjoys that. And it became very apparent very quickly that hermit crabs were not an easy pet. They required a lot more um, to really take care of them properly. And they're a long-term commitment, um, actually. And so that kind of started our whole journey in taking care of hermit crabs. Um, you know, I think a lot of people maybe would have gotten frustrated and given up on the on the idea of hermit crabs at that point. But it was actually bringing our family together, giving us something to do together, creating this family hobby. Um, and we were enjoying learning about them. And the fact that they were a little more complicated um, actually seemed more interesting to us. And we kind of took it as a challenge. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, at the time, my daughters were taking film in high school. And so we kind of got this idea about putting together a YouTube channel um, because the, the 
information available at the time, especially on YouTube. Um, there just wasn't a whole lot. And um, most of it was either outdated or very um, conflicting. And so um, once we kind of did a bunch of research and decided, you know, which care recommendations we felt like were the best and that we were going to commit to and follow, um, the girls asked if we could start our own channel to share that, to educate uh, more people. And so I was like, yeah, let's do that. And that just kind of started this crazy journey. And then we never truly never, you know, dreamed that it would be where it is now. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it is pretty amazing. And it definitely filled a hole. There was an absence of this information on the internet. And again, if people want to listen to the full story of that, go to the first episode, because we get into more of, you know, the importance of the abuse that hermit crabs go through. And, and maybe and we'll probably get onto that as well in this episode, because it is so important. But as far as the giant setup you have behind you, I think last time we spoke, I want to say it had just been set up and maybe it only been up for a couple of months type thing. And so now it's basically a full year later and you have this huge setup for those that are just listening. It's basically a, almost a one continuous enclosure that wraps around their entire room. So maybe you could talk about how big it is actually, but I just want, I'm curious, how is it functioning and have you had to make any changes since the last time we spoke? Great question. So I actually brought you to the other side of the build. So the first time we met, we were on the forest side and now we're on the beach side, um, which we did talk about in that episode. But basically, um, yeah, we have five large aquarium tanks um, lining the perimeter of a bedroom in my house. And we use Exoterra um, terrariums as toppers. Um, we turn them upside down and we take off the screen lid part. And um, then the crabs are able to traverse up and over to the next aquarium. So they're all kind of butted up next to each other. So there's no space in between the tanks whatsoever. Um, and those exo upside exoteros is what give the crabs access to all the other tanks. So they have a, a combined about 710 gallons of aquarium space. And um, I have three different pools for them, which are 10 gallon aquariums inside of that build. And they have two freshwater and one saltwater. Um, and so, yeah, we did separate the build into two, I guess, two sides. One was more foresty, which, you know, just means we have a lot of natural wood with, and leaf litter, moss and lichens and um, fallen branches, like something that you would just normally expect to see in a forest. And then on the side behind me is the beach side, which um, you do see a few wood pieces. Those are mostly just for the traversing um, the two tanks, but um, it's mostly shells and we have some rock. And we created this little jetty looking thing over here behind me. Um, and so it's a lot of coconut hides and things like that, palm or palm branch type um, foliage. So just to symbolize you know, what you would see on the beach side, and also this tank right over my head, this Exoteria is the only one in our build that actually has a UVB light. Mm. And so we've been collecting data on, you know, how often do hermit crabs use UVB? How long do they stay there? Do they seem to need it to thrive and that sort of thing? Um, because that's very controversial in the hermit crab community. Um, and so those are kind of the things that we've been just, just watching, you know, how, how often do crabs stay on one side of the tank versus the other? And this has been now built for, um, I think almost 15 months. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I can confidently say hermit crabs like the forest side of the build. <laughs> really? Absolutely. Yeah. I am pretty convinced that they only go um, to the beach side 
to spawn um, or like in the middle of the night, they will forage over there, you know, um, looking for, you know, food or whatever that's kind of washed up onto the beach. But you don't see them on the side of the build hardly ever during the day. Um, I have not seen hermit crabs using the UVB light significantly. I mean, truly. Now, I probably should go ahead and try and move it to the forest side since I've noticed that they spend most of the time and see if that makes a difference. Mm. Uh, but they're definitely not coming to this beach side just to get UVB, which right. I would think if they needed that really to thrive, that they would come over there. But, um, but they haven't. So that's probably going to be the next thing I do is try to move it to the other side of the tank. But, um, but yeah, they use this side so little that I'm actually considering um, changing one more of these tanks into being the forest part and just having this one tank be the uh, wow. actual beach. And I forget, do you have cameras at night so you can view what's happening when you're not in the room? Or do you just pop in sometimes in the middle of the night just to see what they're up to? We, we did. Um, we did have cameras in there until the breeding season began. And then we moved that, um, that those cameras over to, for that purpose. Oh, so. okay. So, so you did have some access to watching them at night and, and actually they just spend short amounts of time in the beach side and then head back to the forest side. Yes. But I am convinced that this is very important for breeding. I do think they need to see that there is the beach side, um, and that they have those resources available and you can actually see the little crab right here. Yeah. I can see him walking around. Yeah. Very unusual. But guess what? I just discovered literally an hour ago. What? This little Lila is carrying eggs. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's interesting. So that's why she's hanging out on the beach side then. Yes. And my first clue actually was that she has been spending time over here for about the last week and a half, which is very unusual. Um, and so I just got a really good glimpse inside her shell about an hour ago. And sure enough, she uh, has eggs. So that is a Lila, um, which is an Indonesian um, from Indonesia. And so super excited. Um, also, while we're on the topic of that, um, yesterday I picked up another female Lila from a local uh, friend who also has hermit crabs, and she had discovered that her female Lila was carrying eggs, and so she wanted me to kind of pick her up to, you know, to try and raise them. And so I actually added her to this tank yesterday, and and then found out that one of mine also has. Eggs. Oh wow! So this must be breeding season for Lila species. <laughs> Well, it's, so it's really, yeah, it could be, there could be like a weather, the weather barometric pressure, who knows what the hell's going on with them because we, we know so little about breeding some of these species. And it's really remarkable that you found out that they're spending most of their time on the forested side because I mean, they, you know, we talked about it before with the, how horrible the care is right out of the box from these souvenir type shops. People set up this beach scenario, like, you know, most of the care is so bad and and then they do even worse by just giving the beach option typically, right? It's like sand or whatever, fake palm trees and whatnot. And it's pretty amazing to see that they spend most of their time on the forest. So as pet, as hermit crabs become more popular in the pet hobby, I guess part of that care will be providing more of a forested area, which I don't think most people would even realize. Absolutely. I mean, I, put, I cover the entire substrate um, on the forest side with leaf litter. Um, and they have the moss, the lichens, and during the spring, like just recently, I started adding dehydrated flowers. And there's always the bark that are on all of the different trees and the fallen limbs and things like that over there. And I have different types like cork, choya, um, 
Mopani, grapewood. Um, also, there's like just oak branches from our property that we can collect and, and sanitize. And so they have a ton of different choices, but they are just always scavenging for that just natural, um, you know, forest foliage like that. And it's, I have, I have to replace it so often. I mean, it would be, it would shock you how often they go through that entire covered floor of uh, just leaf litter. So before this giant enclosure, this has got to be one of the biggest hermit hermit crab enclosures out there. Before this setup that you've made with the specific beach and forest side, was there any speculation on how to set up an enclosure or was this something that people were still wondering? I think so, definitely. Because, I mean, you know, honestly, most of our ideas come from years and years of research mm-hmm. and people have a lot of, you know, just experience raising hermit crabs. And so from them, we learn, you know, from them, we learn how important leaf litter and moss and lichens and bark and all of that really is to their diet. But I don't think I realized just how important and the amount that they would eat um, was, you know, until we did this big build. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty fascinating. And then do you have a freshwater source in the forested side or is there some sort of saltwater bath on that side? So there's two 10 gallon aquariums, both freshwater on the forest side. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's really that's really remarkable. So I'm glad that uh, you have another year of data, and yeah, the next test will be seeing with the with the UV on the other side. But I suspect that since they are pretty much nocturnal foragers, they probably don't really they might not even respond to it. Right, and that's that's been I think the biggest you know debate um, within the hermit crab community. Um, and so, but I mean, you never know until you try things and you collect that data and you you know try different things and see if that changes. The, the results. I mean, that's just kind of how science works. So yeah, we're just one more person adding to data. <laughs> and then I know we talked about this before with the depth of substrate, you have like 12 inches, it looks like of sand. And I know that was really important for the crabs to go down and do their molting process. But have you had to clean the sand or change the sand or anything? Or is that just, you just leave it? Not at all. Going 15 months strong without any problem whatsoever. You can actually see, I think if I move over, you can see a molting crab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There he is. Yeah. That's cool. So every once in a while, they leave you a really nice little window into their molting process. But um, no, I mean, the substrate has been great. We haven't had any issues. Um, And that's the thing, like I said, you know, it it kind of takes a lot to get your enclosure set up, you know, in in the beginning. And it is a little bit pricey. I mean, depending on (laughs) how big you, you know, the setup you decide to get. But once you set up your hermit crabs enclosure, the maintenance of it and upkeep of it is so simple, um, honestly. And so, yeah, you can you can go many years having the same substrate as long as you know you don't have a bacterial bloom or um, a mold kind of fungus outbreak or any kind of bug infestation. Those are the things that typically, um, or a flood that would make you have to replace the whole thing. Right. Right. Well, why don't we get into the breeding? Because last time we spoke, you were you guys were attempting to breed, and I I'm trying to remember last time. Were you in the middle of a process or had you just failed at one? I, I can't remember. Do you remember? Yes. I believe that we had just finished um, at our last failing attempt. I yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why don't we remind people of the life cycle of a hermit crab? So you can just remind us of the process from egg to land crab, those things. And then we'll talk about how you actually have to go about doing it in captivity. Because it, 
one of the themes I'd seen in some of the comments, a very small amount of comments in the episode that we did, is people think, well, who cares? It's just a hermit crab. Why would we go through all this work? It doesn't make any sense. There's thousands of them or millions of them outside in the wild. Why don't we just pull from pull from the wild? And my response always is, A, if they have a passion to do it, they should do it. B, if we don't have to pull from the wild, we shouldn't. And C, who knows what you're going to learn in this process. So it it, but people sort of see them as maybe like bugs or something. And like, what's the point? But there, there is a point to it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're very passionate about it because we want to change the industry. Um, the wild caught industry is not a good one. And okay, so you think it's okay to go catch, you know, millions of hermit crabs, but that does change, you know, the ecosystem. They're the scavengers, you know, of the beaches. And as soon as you make too big of a footprint in one spot, you're going to affect others, you know, and we're seeing that in some countries. We're seeing where hermit crabs, um, the numbers are becoming so low that they're they're actually labeling them as endangered and um, actually starting to put regulations in place, right? And so to me that we're already too late at that point, um, you know, so it is really important. And, you know, it, it just takes somebody to stand up and say, there needs to be change here and I'm going to be a part of the change. And, you know, then other people kind of join the movement, if you will. Uh, but it's a long process. It takes a lot of time and you do need supporters. So um, I do feel like we have a lot of support. And I know in the hermit crab community, especially, you know, they're very, very supportive. We have a lot of people on board with captive breeding, um, which has been really, really awesome. Well, they have so many things that are against them. The first is it is so easy to collect them in in the wild, and there's so many that make their way over here, despite the amount that actually die in that process. And then how difficult it is for if it was simple for them to breed in captivity, you could see you know it would make more sense. But not only are they easy to get through wild caught methods, they are so complicated and difficult and tedious to breed that it's a really a recipe for having no captive bred market. Yes, um, for sure. And, you know, we're hoping to change that. We definitely have to find a process of breeding that is sustainable and, um, you know, one that can be repeated in a lot of different houses by different caretakers. And so that's something that we definitely are working on is how can we make this more simple? How can we make it, you know, readily available to other people um, where they can reproduce what we're doing? So I know for sure, you know, that's something that we're going to be focusing on this year during breeding season. Um, so that, that's definitely something to keep, um, you know, just to think about, but, you know, going back to your question about the whole kind of life cycle yeah. of it is, you know, so you have your mating and then the female hermit crab carries, um, the fertilized eggs in her shell and depending on your species will depend on the amount of days that she carries them. Some species, we don't actually know the answer to that yet because they've never been bred in captivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's definitely something we're still kind of guessing. But on the species we know that have carried eggs and then spawn them, it's generally somewhere between um, 23 to 28 days, generally. I mean, give or take a few days on either side. Um, And then you have to have a saltwater um, pool that the female can go and spawn the eggs into. If she spawns them on the sand, they won't hatch and they'll they'll die. Um, If she spawns them in freshwater, they will die immediately. And so you have to have a saltwater pool available. Um, and then the female crab will get on the edge of the, the water or, I mean, they can fully submerge and then they um, flick the eggs kind of out of the back of their shell. And as soon as they hit that saltwater, the egg hatches and then you have um, the first larval stage of the hermit crab. 
Um, and so the first five stages, um, you know, of, of their life is in the water, completely in the water. Um, and so they go through different uh, changes and they each stage, they will shed their exoskeleton. Um, and that is where they gain more anatomy through each stage. And again, this all depends on the species. So purple pinchers, um, we know go through five stages. Um, pretty sure that the strawberry crabs also go through five from our experience last summer. Um, but there are some species like um, lilas and violas that um, have an abbreviated larval stage um, and they only go through four. Um, and so, you know, does that mean that they're developing more in the egg before they're spawned? Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so we definitely, you know, have to gather some more information on that. Um, well, but, and, and that's the amazing thing about this is how, how sparse the information is on these. It's not like universities are out having, having a lab out in these, uh, you know, research labs, breeding hermit crabs to learn about them. I suspect eventually, if you haven't already, you guys will hear the hermit crab community who's doing this captive breeding will hear from, from universities who are trying to research these species because nobody is doing it. That is a really important reason to be playing around and learning all these, you know, different facts about each different species. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, um, you know, Mary Akers, most successful captive breeder, um, has, I think, more contact with mm. people like that and has done some music, not music, sorry, some news um, interviews and things like that, and has been published in a book. And so I know the information is getting out there it's very slowly. It's getting out there. So that's really promising and very encouraging and excited, um, exciting. But yeah, so we, a lot of it is just trial and error. You know, I mean, it's like, truly going back to school and using the scientific method to figure yeah. out what you're doing um, and if it's going to work and what's not working and you make some changes and, you know, that's just kind of how it goes. So, so can you remind me of the, the larval stage names? There's egg and then is it Zoe? Is that right? And then what, what comes after that? Yep. So yeah, egg and then the Zoe or Zoea. Um, and then after that is the Megalopa and that's where they get their claws. Um, and then they come to land with their shell. And once they do a final molt and survive that molt, then they're officially um, a land hermit crab. Okay. So the, can you remind us of how small the megalopa and the zoe are? Yes. <laughs> Microscopic. So I have a tiny little shell that I can show you. Um, actually, I have a whole bunch of them in this shell. But I can get one out if you want. I don't know if you can see. Okay. I can yeah. see they're like, they're basically the size of pebbles. Yeah. Small. I dropped them somewhere, but let me see if I can get just one out here. So these are actually the, some of the very first shells that they took. So before their first molt, do they even go into a shell or are they just kind of soft bodied until that last molt or, or I guess their first molt and then they go find a shell? They find a shell first. Okay. Yep. And then they, so they're in water still as megalopa and you have all these tiny shells down on the floor and some up on this little bridge. And so they find their shell and then they crawl up the bridge and go over to a land tank that I have for them. Um, and it has sand and everything. So that as soon as they exit that water for the very first time is the first time they're breathing air. Okay. Um, and so that's like the final larval you know stage of a megalopa is to change into having those modified gills and getting up on land being able to breathe air and then they go and molt and they're officially a land crab so this tiny little 
pebble shaped it doesn't even look like a snail a shell it's so small and I, I they are snail shells right that's what they are like small species of snail or something or who knows what they are yeah they're different kinds i have several different kinds because different species of crabs like different um, openings of shells and their abdomens can be different lengths and so some crabs like you know longer shells versus shorter shells and so there's just all kinds of different ones but they're all teeny tiny yeah so that process, the process of taking them from eggs to Zoe, I remember last time we were talking about these massive water changes you're constantly doing and having to individually move the Zoe with a pipette from one tank to a, to a clean water. And how, so why don't we talk about some of the failures? We, we, can, we can talk more about the process through some of these failures. So you tried, I think, about five times until you had the success. So we'll leave the success for after. But why don't you walk us through some of the failures? How far did you guys get and what did you learn along the way? Okay, so the first four attempts um, were consistently, we only got to day 11, um, and we always failed on day 11. We were having some massive issues with this kind of green algae um, that was growing inside of our chrysal. Um, you know, the chrysal has the movement like an ocean. We use air stones to get the water moving in a circular way. Um, it's temperature, you know, um, we can't put the, the heater in the chrysal itself because the, the Zoe get up against it, it would, you know, hurt them. And so we actually have to heat the water outside of the chrysal, kind of like a double broiler situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's constantly temperature monitored. And then, of course, you have to have your salinity levels correct. And the difficult part with that is you have all the air stones in there moving your water, which is causing evaporation. It's heated, causing evaporation. Um, and so your salinity can spike. So you're constantly right. having to monitor your salinity as well. Um, and of course, if it gets too high, you can't just dump, you know, some fresh water in there because that could shock the Zoe. So instead we take like a spray bottle and we spray it over the top slowly. So it's kind of like rain. <laughs> it's really like you're really trying to be nature. Honestly, so, so what what are you trying to replicate in nature? Is it tide pools or something? Where are these crabs dropping their their eggs in, and where do the zoe hang out in the wild? Yeah, actually, in the ocean, and so we're just trying to create that tide. Oh, so the eggs go right into the ocean when they lay them in the wild. So the okay, so they're just floating around and hoping not to get eaten, basically. Yeah, which I'm, you know, I'm sure most of them do because you know crabs spawn anywhere between. Well, again, depends on the species, but, you know, purple pinchers, for example, um, which have been the you know, most successfully bred in captivity. They can, they can spawn anywhere from 10 to 20,000, oh you know, Zoe at right. one, at one time. And, you know, crabs breed more than once during the breeding season, a lot of them. So, yeah. So, you know, a lot of them are not making it, you know, out. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, so we're just trying to create the ocean. And I can tell you, you know, we've had a few um, tries or attempts, I should say, with other species. And so we try to research the ocean temperature in that region and the salinity in that region so that we can try and replicate that here in our chrysal, um, you know, as best possible. So, so once you have, you know, that down and your chrysal is up and running, you know, what happened is we would do our water changes. Everything was looking good. You know, we're feeding the, the Zoe. They were going through their stages. They typically shed every three days. Um, and so that's kind of how they go through their stages. The, ma- the between stage five and megalopa takes a few more days. But um, anyway, so we're going through this whole process. And, and then by day seven, usually is when that green algae would kind of show up. And by day 11, it 
it was too much like the, it just killed the zoe basically it was sticky um and the zoe would get stuck in it we couldn't we could get them out with the pipette you know like we would just take this little pipette and we try to suck them out of the algae but um it must have gotten in their gills or something I, they couldn't overcome it and so by day 11 we just didn't have any more and was that the same failure all four times it was always the green algae bloom okay yes and it didn't matter what we changed like we you know we tried a different temperature we tried a different salinity we tried um you know we tried not feeding certain foods thinking maybe that was part of it you know we did a lot of different things each attempt but had the same result and so um i did a quick update online and had somebody from our area um, report that she was trying to raise um, frogs and she was having that same problem a couple years ago and that it was actually her water um, and so we we were like okay this sounds probable and so we ordered a test kit for our just regular old kitchen tap water and sure enough it um, we have extremely extremely hard water here um, and so that was that was our issue for those first four attempts. Interesting. See, that's what's great about being able to learn from other animal keepers as well, because there's so much crossover. So, so you had the same failure, the same algae crash each time. And I guess it just wipes out everybody at basically at once. H how disappointing is it that fourth time when you walk in and you see the algae, you must've been just so heartbroken. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we were documenting it kind of vlog style on our channel. And so anybody that's interested in the real raw emotions of my daughters and I <laughs> go check it out. But yeah, literally, like I was on the floor thinking, what is, you know, just what are we going to do? And it's devastating. It was devastating. Like the, this whole process is such a roller coaster on your emotions. It's hard to even put it into words. Um, so, you know, you see the, you can see these hermit crab babies eyes in the egg. So you're shining your flashlight at that mama hermit crab. That's like turning those eggs for, you know, a month almost. And you can see all of their thousands of eyes just looking at you. And then bam, you have Zoe and like thousands of living creatures right here that you're like responsible for. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it just takes so much effort and you're just really invested. I mean, we are, we're just really invested in it and we just want to do our best. And then, you know, constantly when you're not successful, it means like thousands of babies have died. Like that's right. really hard on you. And I think especially when it was the same thing happening, regardless of what we tried, it almost felt like there's no hope. Like we'll never get past this, you know, yeah. it's more felt. Well, and the and to add to it too, it, it's not, you know, in the reptile world, imagine you you breed a species that's no one's bred before and and it can be very difficult, but let's say you put eggs into an incubator and then the eggs don't hatch or there's, they're not fertile or something goes wrong. That's, that's still sucks, but it's not the same as the amount of work that you have to do to maintain the chrysal, do the water changes. Cause I think it was, was it two water changes a day or three, three you water changes, three. So it's like hours and hours of every single day, hours of work dedicated to that project. So it, it hurts a lot when it fails. Yes, for sure. For sure. So, yeah. So but then you, Oh no, go ahead. Um, it did give us some hope though, you know, because that person that, that posted that online said, you know, all she had to do was switch over to reverse osmosis water and she never had the problem again. And so we we're like, okay, that seems simple enough. We just need some reverse osmosis water. Um, and so we ended up, you know, going ahead and putting that in our kitchen. Um, and so that, that was very helpful. 
so so then okay so now in attempt number five you have the ro system hooked up in the kitchen that was probably a, an expense in itself and a, an investment so now you're using ro water and how far did you get that time so that time we got to day 23 so day 12 must have been a party <laughs> yeah day 11 yeah i well day 10 i was like please no like we have to get past this first yeah but yeah. um so oh yes i'm sorry you're right so day 12 yes was a party yeah, yeah for sure um, definitely. We were pretty ecstatic and, um, you know, hopeful for sure. And we're like, okay, we figured it out. Like it's the RO water. And so, yeah, definitely. Although we were also very like, okay, now what? <laughs> yeah. 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 You don't prep for, you just want to get past it. And then all of a sudden you've got past and now, now what do you do? So you yeah. got past, you got through that. Things were looking good. What stage were things at when you hit day 23? They were stage five. Okay. Yeah. And actually this was with strawberry hermit crabs. So, um, we were really, really excited that we had made it so far with an exotic species. Um, but they just never transitioned to megalopa. And I can't tell you why I, to this day, I have no idea. Um, I didn't have a whole lot make it to day 23. Um, but something had to have been missing in their diet is what I'm guessing that helps that particular species make that final molt where they have their claws. Um, and so we haven't had strawberries successfully bred in captivity yet. So we just have to try something different next time. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. So, okay. So then you got to that at day 23, did they die or they were just, they should have been moving on at that point and they hadn't, hadn't been. So they were, um, all, they were all just gone by that day when I woke up. Okay. Damn. Yeah. So another heartbreak. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Although, I mean, we had made it really far. And so I was, you know, excited about that, but definitely had, you know, figured that that was the end of our breeding season. You know, that was already mid August, I think. So, so this would have been after we spoke last for sure. I, I'm not, maybe the, the, the eggs might've been in the picture when we recorded the last episode. So that happened in late fall or early, or early fall, or whatever it was. And then attempt number six came along and by the sounds of it, it wasn't necessarily planned or, or you weren't necessarily going to go for it. So maybe you could tell us that story now. Yeah. Um, so the, at this point, you know, the girls were gone to college and I was back at school. Um, I had packed up the entire breeding setup, which we only have out during breeding season because it's in this room and it takes up all of the extra space in the middle of the room is we have this table with all the, the chrysal and the tanks and all that. Um, and so I had already cleaned everything and, and literally stored it for the winter, so to speak. Um, and so it was, you know, I think the second week of school and we were on our way out to the first Friday night football game. And I just happened to like come in the crab room, just make sure things okay. I kind of do that before I leave. And I could tell from the door and I looked over here to the saltwater pool and I could see thousands of Zoe swimming around. Um, and so news to say, I didn't go to the football game. <laughs> plans changed. <laughs> yeah. Plans changed. So, so, so you walk in, there's a, a whole bunch of Zoe and, so what's the next step? But because normally do they, were you letting them drop their clutch of eggs into the aquariums in the, no, you weren't. Okay. So, so that was not a part of the plan at all. Now you have to pull all these animals out. Yes. So we did actually have two other spawns last summer that did end up in here. Cause I just didn't, the very first one of the season I didn't catch. And then there was another one during the middle of the season that, um, I just didn't 
again, it's the different species. And so I didn't gauge the amount of time that um, the mom was carrying the eggs to when she would spawn quite right. So we did have a couple times where they ended up in here, but normally I like to time it just right and have the mom put in a separate little, you know, I call it the birthing suite mm-hmm. um, where, you know, she can drop her eggs and then they're already all contained um, in a nice clean tank. You know, this one, it's, I mean, it's quality wise, it's, it's good water, but it has sand in the bottom and it has rocks in there and it has shells and trying to get all the Zoe out of this tank is very difficult for one. It's our, it's our deep, our tallest tank, And I'm pretty tall and I'm five ten, but I have to get on a ladder to reach this pool and I can barely reach it down that far. So how did you get them? Do you just pull all the water out with Zoe inside and, or what did you do to get them out? So most species of Zoe are light um, reactive. And so I can shine. Well, I have, you have to have two people to do this in this tank. So one person stands down at the saltwater pool with a flashlight and the Zoe for the most part swim towards that light. And then I use my siphon, you know, this little water, it's just your basic tubing, um, air stone tubing, um, pump tubing, whatever. And then I have a straw on the end, like a drinking straw. Yeah. Um, you know, Whataburger or whatever. <laughs> it's very high tech, you know. Yeah, Anyways, yeah. And so you you basically siphon it out. So I put my little straw in the tank and then I suck on this side so I can siphon the water up. And then this goes into a collection jar. And I just try to collect the Zoe um, while they're there towards the light. And it does take several, you know, times. You have to move the light to the other side of the tank and that sort of thing. But the trick is really getting the filter turned off in here because. I mean, you're losing lots of them that are being sucked up into the filter. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at that, so now your daughters are gone to college. You've gone back to work. So it's no longer summer and you've just decided that you're just going to go for it. I, was there a point where you're like, maybe I'll just let this, this, uh, batch go or you decided like, no, I, I you, once you see them, you have to try. Yeah. I, there was maybe a moment where I was like, how am I going to do this? But I thought, I can't not try. We learned from every attempt. I didn't really think we would be successful. I'm here by myself. I'm at work. Um, But I thought, even if I make it to, you know, whatever, day 15 or something, we'll learn. And we had no idea what species this was because I I didn't think I had any crabs carrying eggs. I thought we were finished. Right. So it was kind of like a mystery batch of babies. And what if they were some exotic species or, you know, whatever. And so... You would hate to not be able to gather information and just give it your best at a, and a you know, at an attempt at least. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, well, I'm going to do what I can do and see how far we can get. <laughs> so how did you do it then? You must have changed. The, you clearly weren't doing three water changes a day. Did you have to completely change your method? I did. So um, I did try the filtered chrysal, which I think we talked about a little bit um, the last time that we were together. but. Um, it didn't work in that other attempt. Did we talk about it? Actually, did we talk about the filtered chrysal? I can't remember. I, I, I can't remember if that was a theoretical idea at the time or if you'd actually tried it. So yeah, maybe you could just refresh our memories on that. Yeah. Cause I think it may have been that fifth attempt. So we, um, we've been working with somebody in Indonesia, um, Rizky Pachanto is his name and he's also trying to, you know, captive breed there as well. And he developed 
um, the filtered chrysal. So it's the basic idea of Mary Aker's two drum chrysal, but he created this middle chamber where he placed a filter and then he built two spray bars that came out from that middle chamber um, that would spray into the chrysals. And the inner edge of each chrysal had some mesh. So uh, you've got your circular tide-like motion going on in your um, different in your chrysal, pushing the bad water through that mesh mm-hmm. into that center, you know, centers console, or I don't know what you call that center part of the, the chrysal there, which is being filtered. And so that bad water is then filtered, sucked up into the spray bars and sprayed back into the chrysal. And so you have this constant rotation of being filtered, water being filtered, yet the Zoe staying in their chrysals and not being affected or sucked up by that filter. So, um, so we tried to incorporate that idea into our chrysal that we had already built, um, which already had their own two drums. And so we just added the filter there in the middle and we built the spray bars out of garden hose tubing, actually. Um, very inexpensive and really easy um, to work with. We just drilled holes in that tubing um, so that we would get the spray to come out. And it was easily flexible. You could turn the spray to any kind, you know, rotate it to push that water in the direction that you needed to. Yeah. And so the filtering part was working pretty good. The, so what did you use for, for a membrane or mesh as to the intake into the filter? Because obviously with these tiny microscopic Zoe, you have to use something that's probably pretty fine. Yes. 200 micro mesh, micron. Okay. Okay. So just that makes sense. Yeah. You can't use a typical fish tank filter. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, it was 200. Yeah. And then it's silicone on on the outside of the um, Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Um, and so this is with the strawberry crabs and, um, we had the, the filter system going and everything was working really good. And one day we had a family outing that we had to go to. And when we came back devastation, the mesh had become clogged, mm-hmm. which meant that the, the water and the chrysals were rising faster than it was being able to empty out. So the spray bar was, you know, putting fresh water in yeah. too fast compared to it. So, so then the waters overflow into that middle chamber and we lost a lot of the Zoe that day. Damn. Yeah. But like you yeah. said, that was, that was the number, that was number five, right? So you would have learned into this number six. So what, so you just make sure you're cleaning the filters on that number six round or. So, um, we had to get a different mesh. And um, after the end of the attempt five, I completely disassembled our double chrysal. I mean, I took it completely apart because we had also used live rock in that middle chamber, thinking it would help um, just with the water quality itself. And it did. I think it did help. But our water was so clean and we had so much movement in there that we actually grew coral. Wow. All over the tank, which made it really difficult to see the Zoe inside of the tank. And it was nearly impossible, you know, to get it all off after our attempts failed. And so I just have to start over. I had to start over with a new Chrysal at that point. So I built a single Chrysal, um, which we, we'd already had the single Chrysal up and running because we had so many eggs this summer. Um, and so I just ended up using that for this surprise spawn that we had in late, um, August. It 
it was um, also ready to be, it was filtered. And so I began um, that attempt using the filtered, but ended up having the same problem with the water in the Chrysler rising fast, you know, too fast. It wasn't emptying fast enough. So I just decided to turn off the filter and go back to the old method mm. of several water changes a day, pipetting them out um, because I didn't have anywhere to move the Zoe at the time. And I was already in school and trying to rebuild that you know, double Chrysler. model. It just wasn't feasible at the time. Um, and so, yeah. So, I just so how are you doing three water changes a day with going to work? So I, could, I knew I couldn't do that. So I had to figure out something else. I had to figure out what, what can I change? Um, and the biggest thing was the amount of food that I was feeding. I had to feed less somehow so that I didn't have to do that, that middle of the day water change. And so I implemented something that I've just decided to call direct feeding, um, which we didn't do in any of our other attempts. And what I mean by that is um, when I would feed the crabs, I would actually bring them to the front of the Chrysler with the flashlight. And then I would use my siphon to purposely suck as many, if not all of the Zoe into my wastewater jar. And then I took a little medicine cup and used some of the Chrysler water. And then I put in the dried foods that I was feeding and I would mix it up in there. And then I would use my pipette and I would suck up some of that food and I would drop it directly over all those Zoe in my wastewater jar. And it was like a koi pond, like just this frenzy of feeding. It was so cool to watch. And was that once a day or twice a day? Um, I was doing that um, four times a day. Okay. Every time I talk to you, I just get blown away at the amount of work that you have to do to, to, to keep everything moving. And it's amazing. So if you're doing that four times a day, you do it twice in the morning, twice in the evening, basically? Yes. Now my husband did do an afternoon feeding for me. So I have to give props to my husband. He helped me out with this. So Okay, good. Yeah, he would come home, but we would only feed the live artemia in the in the middle of the day because it doesn't foul the water as quickly. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so then, so things obviously change. You're busier with uh, life, and but the Zoe continued to progress. So, what what did you start to observe? Like, at what point did you think, "Wow, this is going to get further than than last time"? Actually, pretty early on. So, I think because we had so much trouble with that green algae. We were told by a lot of people, I mean, we were all trying to figure out what was going on, but the consensus was we were feeding too much, which was causing the water to create this algae problem, right? And so we weren't feeding them very much thinking we're overfeeding, we're overfeeding, right? And so even on attempt five, we weren't, we were trying to just be really diligent about feeding very little so that we wouldn't foul up the water. Well, this time I'm doing this direct feed and, I, and they're only gonna be in this small jar just while I feed them. And then I'm going to just suck up the Zoe and put them back, right? I'm not even going to take any of that dirty water where all that food was that I just put in there. I mean, some, I guess we get in, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so I was just feeding them. I'm like, here you go, guys, like, you know, buffet. And I just fed them tons. And so they, they took on so much color right from the beginning. I was like, either these are some crazy species that we've never seen before or like these are really healthy babies. So color, what do you mean? Because they're basically clear. What were you seeing? Oh, so they were clear for all of our other attempts. They were bright orange. I mean, think shrimp. Really? 
Mm-hmm. Interesting, which kind of makes sense. And you can imagine that in the ocean, there is so much debris, and it's like snowing in the ocean all the time. These animals are probably eating perpetually. Right. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. So I knew right away this is working, and these guys are healthy, and they're much bigger, and they're they were swimming so much more. You know, before it was like the water would just move these guys. This time around, no, they were swimming. Like they were very active um, and strong. And my numbers, I had, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands. Wow. And so, okay, so tell us about the transition from Zoe to Megalopa. What was that experience like? That was your first time seeing that, right? Yes. So I was getting really nervous by day 23, of course, because, you know, that last attempt ended there. Um, But I still had several thousand on day 23. And they were looking really good. And so, of course, I'm panicking and I'm I'm messaging, you know, Mary and Risky and, you know, Sue from, from Australia. Like every person who's ever attempted to breed, I'm like, are you sure? Like, they're really going to change. What am I missing? What do I need to do? And they just assured me, you know, just, just keep looking for these signs. Basically, you know, when the Zoe look pregnant, their bellies get really, really bulging because their claws are in there. Mm. And they're like, you're just looking for that. And once you kind of start to see that, then you know they're going to be megalopa. Um, and I don't know why, but they always make a little bit first thing in the morning. Like when you come in here and turn on the light, it's just like out come their claws. So it was the coolest thing the first morning when I turned on that light and got to see them, literally see them shed and pop out those claws. So you're actually actively watching them transition through those phases. Yes. What did that feel like? Um, It was unbelievable like almost you're in shock like did I see that wait is that really yeah it is you know and and then I was like crying so then I couldn't (laughs) see the other ones (laughs) um you know it is like 4 30 a.m when I'm doing this because you know I have to be at school by 7 30 so I would wake up at four to get ready for you know school and then by 4 45 5 I was starting the water change um and so so it's early in the morning and And that's an everyday thing and maybe the weekends you can sleep in a little bit if you, if you don't have to get to work, but still that is a con- insane commitment. So was that day 23 when they transitioned? No, it was um, day 20, hold on, let me think, um, day 25. Okay. So basically a month of, of waking up early, taking care of these guys. So once they get to Megalopa, is it still the same amount of, is it still as laborious as it was with the Zoe? Are you still doing all the water changes and, and oh my feeding? Goodness. Or is, is it worse? Don't tell it's me it's more. worse. It's oh more. <laughs> oh my gosh. I didn't think it would be, but it was. Now, I think this is this is something that I'm going to have to change. I don't think it should be more, but let me try to explain to you. Okay, so, you know, these guys change to make a little bit first thing in the morning. The stage five Zoe still in the chrysal will attack the megalopa. That doesn't even seem right. I mean, these guys are the ones with the claws. You think they, I don't know how it happens, but so you have to get them out very quickly. So I'm using my siphon to just try and just get the megalopa amongst these thousands of Zoe, you know, cause they don't all change at the same time or on right. the same day. And so I have this little dish. Well, the jar that I usually use is what I'm putting them into, right? Well, a few of the stage five Zoe do get caught also. And so I'm catching, I think I had like eight that first day. So I'm zooming all around in the crystal trying to find those eight megalopa. <laughs> well, then I turn around in my little jar here and like, they're gone. The stage five Zoe have like, they're, they're all gone. 
so did they megalopa or they just disappeared like they were eaten or well i mean they were dead yeah they were like eaten yeah oh i see of them were bitten on yeah gotcha their tails mostly so it's a perpetual battle then yeah Yes. Oh so, sure. so how, what did you do? You, you you went in there at five in the morning or four in the morning and you start doing this and then you know you have to go to work, I'm sure, unless it was a weekend. So how did you even manage that first day? Yeah, it was so sad. But I, I mean, there weren't that many megalopas. So I was still hopeful. I'm like, okay, well, we learned that lesson. Something I have to do something different here, you know, but I have tons, I have thousands more. So there's plenty of hope. And so, you know, I went to school and I text Faith because she's the closest. And I was like, I'm sorry you got to come home and help me. (laughs) Yeah. Like I can't do this part on my own. And so she did. So she came home. And so with two of us, we had one dish and we decided, um, this was Mary's idea. She said, instead of having a jar, that's like tall, you know, you have, you know, instead you, instead of having volume, you want surface area. Right. And so we got literally a baking dish from our kitchen that, you know, was long and wide. And, um, and so we had two of those sitting on the table. I would siphon the megalopa into the first dish. Faith would pipette the megalopa into the second dish as they were coming through the siphon. Gotcha. Yes. And then we also changed that morning. We decided to put uh, food in both dishes that way. Like, okay, don't eat each other. Here's some food. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of crazy that they eat each other like that. I mean, maybe that's a survival thing. You know, you have to, you want to be the one that survives. Right. And Mary, Mary has had that happen too. So we knew that was a possibility, but I didn't think it happened that fast. I mean, it happened so fast. Yeah. So you have to be ready to like make that change like right away. So, um, so Faith stayed with me, um, for those first few days until we figured out this process and it was working. Um, and so once we had all the megalopa in their dish, we would then put the stage five Zoe back into the chrysal. And then we would take the megalopa over to what I called the transition tank. So the transition tank, it was two like storage bins, like Rubbermaid storage bins, small ones. I'm bigger than a shoebox, but I don't know, maybe like 11 by 12 or something, 11 by 13, I guess. Yeah. And um, one of them had salt water and one of them had sand. And then I had a bridge that went from the one tank to the, to the land tank. And so there were shells all over the bottom of the water side of this transition tank. Um, and there were air stones in there moving the water around. Now that's pretty shallow. There's only about two and a half inches of water in that little transition tank. Um, and so we would put them in there, you know, we count them and put them in there. Um, and then it was kind of their job. They had to find a shell and climb on the land. Wow. And so at that point, you're just hoping that they actually do it because yeah. there's so many different steps to this. You can fail at any one of them. So yeah. you put them in there and then, how long does it take them to start looking and, and accepting a shell? I thought it was going to happen right away. <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> I was like, this is going on forever. So um, I ran into issues right away in the transition tank. There are so many tiny shells. I showed you the size of the shells, right? Yeah. They're so tiny. They, they fit through the siphon without a problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? The tiny air hose. Yes. And the bridge is going down the middle. And you've got three air stones in there. And then I also had like a little rock that had a tree on it. 
I was trying to give them different ways to get out of the water once they had a shell. So there were a lot of things in the way of being able to really see clearly everything in that tub. And you're feeding them, you have to feed them, right? And they're pooping. So water quality became an issue right away for me. Mm. Um, and I was having to change, do water changes in the transition tank with tiny shells everywhere. While still managing the Chrysler with the stage five Zoe. Yes. Of course. <laughs> yes. And so I had a huge spike in ammonia in the transition tank. I lost a lot of the megalopa kind of early on. Um, I was doing six water changes in the transition tank a day. Oh my God. What <laughs> yeah. the hell? Yeah. How, how is that even possible? So were you coming home from work or? Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. So I was, luckily I, my school is very close to my house. I was coming home on my lunch break and I was, um, I had special permission to come home on my conference period because my admin's amazing and they were supporting this great, you know, science experiment. And, you know, I shared it with my students and they were all watching, following along and everything. So it was, you know, they wanted, wanted me to have that um, ability to be able to do that. So mm. I would get up at 4 a.m. I would do water change before I went to school. Then um, I would feed them at seven right before I left. I would come home at 11. I come home at one and then I come home at four after school. And I would also do one at seven and then 11. Oh my gosh. That is just so wild. So how, how many did you end up getting transitioned from Zoe to Megalopa? Do you know how did you, or was that still too big of a number to actually have a number on? Yes. Yeah, so, so my first Megalopa happened, you know, on day 25. And my last megalopa happened on day 38. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so you're doing process, both for that long, for like 13 days. Yeah. So the process started on August 27th. And by the last megalopa, when I could finally shut down the price, it was already October 3rd. Wow. Yes. <laughs> you okay. must have been so exhausted. I truly, truly was. Yeah. I, yes. Very, that beyond exhausted for sure. Yeah. Um, and so my first megalopa um you know day 21st was um no it was day 25 september 21st and then my last megalopa that came to land was um i think day 38 like i said okay and then by the time they started taking shells i wasn't actually finished until day 50 which was um october 7th okay so, so that's when they're starting to pick up shells and is it starting to get easier at that point once they get onto land? Once they're on land, yes, that part gets really easy, but it was just so slow, the amount that they were taking shells and the, you know, once I got the water quality in check, um, the next issue that I ran into is that I had so many megalopa coming up on that bridge without a shell. So we call them naked. And they can't come to land naked. They have to have a shell. So I would be using this pipette and like squirting them back in. I'm like, no, you can't come out. <laughs> well, you <laughs> got to get a shell. Yes. Or I'd take the tweezers and I'd get this little tiny shell and I'd set it right in front of them. I'd be like this right here. <laughs> will, will they just dry out if they come to land without a shell? Dehydrate yes. really fast. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So once they would come to land, they get their shell properly. They cross the bridge and now they're in the sand. Were they just hanging out in that sand area or are you removing them from there as well and putting them into another container? Originally, I was going to leave them in that container, um, and I did at the beginning, but then I was having a really hard time um, 
being able to tell which ones had already molted and were actually confirmed hermit crabs and which ones were just coming over. Because again, I was at, I was working. So I was at school and it was, you know, I wasn't there to tell which ones were coming up from the sand and, and which ones had just made it over from the bridge. So I did start as soon as they would come over and make it to land, I would move them to a separate land tank that I set up. Um, and that seemed to really help a lot. And, um, you know, then I could keep a better eye on everything and make sure, you know, that um, everybody had shells and how many there were and that sort of thing. So. So at the end of the day, how many did you get to come to land? 67. That's a lot. It That's pretty. I, I know obviously there's thousands that you start with, but 67 is still a pretty huge number. But here's the thing. I had 1,956 megalopa in there. How do you know that? Did you count? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so in our little dish every morning when we would, you know, we would get them, I would take them over to the trans- transition tank and, and one at a time pipette them and count them. You're so I knew the exact amount. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, I was like, oh my goodness, like I lost so many. And I know it, it had to have been the water quality. I really fought with that the whole time. I shouldn't have to do six water changes in there. Like I don't, it shouldn't be that way. It, it wasn't that way for Mary. So I really think my problem in the beginning was that I was not moving the shells around in the water enough. And so a lot of debris was getting caught up in the shells gotcha. and fouling the water. And so I was doing these water changes, but I wasn't getting enough of the debris from underneath the shells and underneath the bridge and, and all that. So I was just too afraid of moving the shells and it would like go over one of the megalopa and hurt them or you know, I was just afraid I was going to hit the megaloba. So I was trying to not move very much in the water. And in, and I really think that that ended up hurting me in the long run because of the water quality. So would you just find dead ones on the ground, basically, and then you'd pull those ones out? Or or how are they dying? Or were they dying? You just They just dis- disappear, basically. Yeah, I think the live ones were eating them. Right, I really wouldn't sense. see very many dead ones. So... So yeah, eventually Mary convinced me that I have to abuse the megalopa. I have to get in there and just be the ocean. Yes, and yeah. And big waves, moving shells and moving the megalopa. And that, you know, I just needed to not be so scared. And by the time I finally was like, okay, I'm going to do that. Then the water got a lot better, but I just think it was too late. I'd already lost so many. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, 67 made it over into land. And then um, about three months later, I did a final count survival count into a new tank um and i have 35 that survived okay well it's hard to imagine what you would do with 2000 hermit crabs <laughs> i mean how would you have you have to like build another house <laughs> true yeah <laughs> but st- so there's a few things that one is since it's, everything is so new nobody's doing this the equipment that you use is all handmade so i imagine are you thinking about other ways next time around to agitate that water a little more like can you use i don't know wave maker type thing to keep things flowing yes uh, we're trying to i mean i've been trying to kind of brainstorm if i could put like a submersible sponge filter in the corner and put some mesh you know silicone some mesh around it so that the megalopa can't get through there but it's still filtering the water um i think i need a new bin that's deeper i need to have more volume and surface area um because it just you put almost two thousand megalopa in there it's just fouling the water so quickly you know too fast i can't keep up with it yeah Um, so that's definitely something that i need to do differently and i do plan on 
you know, changing, working on the Chrysler so that the filter system does work. I mean, I know it can, you know, Risky uses it. Um, Sue, this this past summer from Australia, she um, built a, a filtered Chrysler and it worked for her. She got some to land using her filtered Chrysler. So I know it's possible. I just have to, you know, I just have to keep working with it until I can find a method that works. So. Yeah. Well, first I'll say congratulations because you are in a very small number of people basically in history that have ever done this. Do you know how many people have done it? It's got to be less than 20, right? Yes. Yeah. So we're third in the United States. That's amazing. And um, I've been told 12th in the world. That is insane. That's really, really amazing, especially because what's amazing about it is how passionate you and your daughters came to this project. You know, you you bought the souvenir type thing and, and now you're one of the only people in the history of mankind to have done this successfully, which is just unbelievable. Thank you. Yeah, we're so we're very, very excited. And uh, I'm sad that Brooke and Faith weren't here for the whole process, but I could not have done what I did without all of you know the attempts that we all did together right. you know, beforehand. And so it's hard for them to see it that way, I think, a lot of times, but um, you know, I that's how I see it. <laughs> Right. And can, you've mentioned Mary a couple of times. Can we just t- take a minute to just talk about Mary Akers? Because she seems like an incredible, powerful powerhouse in this domain. And a lot of this stuff was revolutionized by her. So maybe you could just take a few minutes to just mention uh, the accomplishments that she's done and how she's helped you. Yeah, absolutely. So she, um, she wasn't the first one to get crabs to land, but she's definitely, she was the second one in America. And She's the first one to be so successful that she's able to adopt them out, you know, in large numbers and now for several years um, consecutively. And so, you know, her methods are definitely working and she, it's just her mission to change the industry. And, and she thinks, you know, this is the best way to do it. And so she also knows she can't be the only one doing it. And so she's so generous um, that she is, you know, taking, um, under her wing as an apprentice, some different, you know, people who are passionate and committed um, to the process and to the, the cause. So she actually began Hermit House Breeding um, as a company. And so we're, offic- I can show you, we're officially certified as Hermit House Breeders now. Oh, awesome. So, it's very, very, very exciting. Um, but yeah, so really she's, if, if you hear of people saying that they have captive bird babies, if they didn't get them from Mary Acres, then they... They did, they're not captive bred. Um, she also partnered with Josh's Frogs um, just this past fall. And so okay. they are the first retailers to carry captive bred hermit crabs. So. Okay, awesome. Well, Josh has been on the podcast before. So people are from everybody's familiar with Josh's Frogs. So that is really cool. I'm glad that there's an avenue going into the into the marketplace for them to be sold. And, and I think we talked about before, you know, it's it's a tough challenge because of how many are wild caught, how cheaply they're sold and the souvenir type mindset, but to have captive bred crabs going to people's homes who are actually care about the husbandry and plan on setting up a setup similar to yours is that's ideal. Yeah. I, I think, you know, they're, they're very invested. Of course, if, if, as you know, um, Josh's frogs are invested in captive breeding of animals and ethical care of them and, um, proper training, everything. So I know they've already put out some videos on how to properly set up a crab attack. They're selling all of the, you know, everything that you need to, to take care of them. Of course, you can get it through Josh's Frogs. And personally, I think they're very reasonable. Like mm-hmm. they want the animals to be taken care of. And so they want everybody to have access to what they need. 
Um, so it's been an amazing partnership. And um, I know the, the Hermit Crab community is like just thrilled um, that they kind of jumped on board with this movement. So yeah, that's a perfect partner because Josh has a great mindset and he's all about connecting people with nature while making sure that everything is ethically responsible, uh, responsibly sourced and whatnot. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So why don't we talk about the 30 odd crabs that you, that did make it and h- how big are they now? Cause they would have, they, how old are they now? They're like four months or five months old. Yeah, almost six. Yeah, almost six. So, well, the first one that took, you know, came to land was October 7th. So um, almost six months old. And um, I can tell you, okay, so I showed you the first shell size. So this is, was their second when they sized up. These were so kind still of, pretty tiny looking. Yep. And now they are in this size shell. So those are more like a, like the size of a marble almost. Yes. Yeah. And I can show you, I have them right here. Let's see if I can get, get them out so high. These are historical crabs. So what species did they end up being? Purple pinchers or? They are purple pinchers, okay. yes. So you're going to have to take another crack at the strawberries then. Yes, for sure. All right. He <laughs> <laughs> just rolled away. Yes. This little dish I'm putting them in is actually the very first water pool that they had as babies. That's and I had awesome. to use a bridge for them to get in and out of this because they were so tiny. Hopefully they'll come out, but... Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see them. Wow, that's amazing. It's funny because you never see them that small because the, the only ones you see are wild-caught adults, really. Right. Well, he is very... I was hoping to call on this to help you see him, but call on this little bridge, you guys. They're not nearly as shy as adult crab, as the wild-caught crabs. Well, I can imagine how... Yeah, yeah I mean, that's with, with captive breeding, it's going to be a whole different experience with them. There we go. <laughs> All right. He is, he's not he's a fan. He's ready to run. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is amazing. So at what age, uh, what's the plan with these guys? Um, so we, we actually, I mean, we have a lot of people from Crescental Station that are interested in our very first captive bred babies that we got to land, of course. And there, I wish we had more, like, I totally wish we had more so that everybody who wanted one could get one. But, um, you know, uh, I did everything I could and, and this is what we have. So I'm going to keep a few for the breeding program, um, for just science and so forth. Um, and so we are probably going to adopt out 27 of them. Um, and I'll keep eight. And I think what we're going to try to do is more of a fundraiser so that we can put the money back into the breeding program um, and just, you know, help it to grow and help to have better resources and, and things like that. And so um, our idea right now, our thoughts, which we're still kind of playing with how this will actually happen, but I think we're going to do kind of a silent auction type thing. Okay, cool. So, and then they'll make it to their new homes and that, that's amazing. And so when will the next project start or the next breeding breeding project start? Because, you know, you'd mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, there's the crab crawling around behind your shoulder there that's carrying eggs. So are you going to attempt with those or you will? Yeah, absolutely. And so I have two Lilas right now carrying eggs. 
And so I'm going to get the Chrysler up and running here. Of course, I'm still in school. So we'll be back to, back to me working on this by myself, um, at least the beginning. But I think the girls will eventually be here before it's over. Um, but Lila is a species that has an abbreviated larval stage, which I'm really excited about. Um, and so <laughs> they, they are um, supposedly they go from stage you know, one to being a megalopa in nine days. Oh, wow. Okay, so that should you should have more sleep this time, hopefully. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. So, and and when they're spawned, they're already like so much bigger than um, the purple pincher Zoe or even like strawberry or Ecuadorian, um, and so they're easier to just see and work with just right from the beginning. Um, they don't have as many though. Um, I can already tell you, looking in these two shells here, there's not near the amount of eggs. But that's probably a good thing. Could be. I mean, I have less margin for error. Right. Yes. Um, to be successful, um, but also shorter amount of time in the water. And so, less water fouling as well. Right. Yes. So um, we risky had Lila's um, spawn last summer, um, but and they did megalopa, but didn't take shells and make it to land. So there's still a lot to learn about that species for sure. That's incredible. Well, it's, it's an amazing story. I'm so happy that you had success doing this. It, I don't think anyone would have doubted it after talking to you last time because you, you're so focused and you're just a- eager to make this work. So you'll probably make some adjustments, I'm sure, to make it less labor intensive. And it'll just every time you go through it, I'm sure there'll be new equipment that you can design and new equipment that you can create to make this a continual, continually easier to do. Yes. I mean, that's our goal. We need to find the simplest way and most accessible way so that we can you know, take on new breeders. So, you know, Mary can't be the mentor for all of us, you know, but as we get more and more experience, then, you know, I'll take a a breeder or two under my wing and help them along. And so that we can just continue to grow hermit house breeding um, to the point where, you know, we can be the suppliers for hermit crabs rather than wild caught. But in order for that to happen, we, we do have to simplify the method. We do have to find a way that's replicable, you know, over and over consistently um, that other people are able to do and have a job. <laughs> do you guys have a grasp on how many wild-caught crabs do come over on the number? I don't. I, I think because it's um, there's no regulation. I mean, and you don't even have to register to like go catch hermit crabs, you know what I mean? So there's no way to even track how many people are collecting and bringing them to these holding bats, you know? Uh, so I, I just, there's, there's millions. I know that. Well, and, and it's almost, you, you wouldn't even need to replace the entire wild caught market because a huge section of the wild caught market, wild caught market is that souvenir mindset. So it'd be just good to just have that eradicated completely. And like you said, it's weird that it, an animal can be treated as a souvenir, but they are actually, that's actually, you know, you walk in, you see the painted shell, you buy it and you go home and then it dies. And so all of that could basically be eliminated and then maybe just pet stores selling them and, you know, private breeders selling them. Yeah, that would be a huge um, help in the, in the whole movement. And I know that there are people advocating down there, you know, to stop the sale of souvenir crabs, you know, and at the end of every summer, you know, those, those shots literally throw them, they throw them in the trash can. They put them in a bag and throw them in the trash can. I'm not even kidding you. Like wow. when, when people stop going to the beaches, that's what they do with these crabs. 
Yeah, just total waste. Can they be adopted out at the size they are now that we're just saying, you know, it's around the size of a marble? Is that too small to send it to a home or is that okay? So my hermit crabs are growing really, really fast. They're actually wearing shells the size that um, the ones I adopted from Mary were when they were a year old. And so size-wise, I think they could be adopted out, but we typically wait until they're a year old. Um, that's okay. what, at least that's what we've been doing. Um, so they will be available for adoption this summer. You're going to have a lot of crabs on your hands in like <laughs> yeah. a, two or three years from now. Is, do you, have you thought about that at all? Or are you just taking it sort of one clutch at a time? Taking it one clutch at a time. I think that was definitely a concern for Mary because she's gotten hundreds to land, you know, I mean, really hundreds, like each summer, hundreds, 700, 800. So, wow. yeah. So I know that was definitely a concern for her, but when she partnered with Josh, uh, Josh's frogs, and they actually, um, the very first time that they publicized that they had captive bread from the crabs for the price that they listed them, uh, they sold out so fast. Mm. Um, and they actually have had a difficult time keeping them in stock. Because, of course, they have the correct substrate, so they're always, you know, having some crabs that are up and some that are molting. And so they only ever list for sale the ones that are currently not molting. Right. Um, and so they, I mean, they've said for the most part, they have enough inquiries for them that, you know, they're just always waiting for crabs to come up from molt. Um, and so, I mean, at some point, could we flood that market? I doubt it. I can't imagine because there's so many people interested in it. I mean, you would have to have so many crabs to, to flood that market, I think. Yeah, I, especially if we can get the exotics. I don't, I'm not worried about that at all. Yeah. Um, I know there's tons and tons of people. I mean, Lilas are so rare in the United States um, and strawberries as well. They're really just hard to come by. We also have violas and brevies and Ecuadorians. So, a lot to work with there. Yes. So, so are, are Mary's captive bred ones? Are those in Josh's facilities? Like she's just she brings them a bunch of crabs, and then they're all, they're out of her hands, and they Josh takes care of them, or his staff takes care of them. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, and I think you know, for now, we've kind of kept at sending purple pinchers because um, they're the most well known and the easiest to care for. They're kind of the hardiest species that we know of. And um, if we do eventually get any of the exotic breeds to land, um, I don't know how we're going to handle, you know, the adoption and sale of those just yet, um, because they do require more advanced setup and more advanced knowledge about hermit crabs. And so just vetting the right person um, is going to be important because you'd hate to send, you know, these babies out to, to somebody that doesn't really know um, how to care for them since it is different than the purple pinchers. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. One other thing I wanted to make sure we highlight is the your daughter. I think Faith did. Uh, I think it was her that put it together. That documentary last summer. It was. It would have been right after. I believe right after we would have spoke. Or I don't think it was out last time we spoke because I, I don't think we mentioned it. Or maybe it was out, but we didn't mention it. But it's a great documentary. Maybe could you talk a little bit about what that is? It's about forty-five minutes. Yes. So she actually created that documentary as our CrabCon um, talk last summer, and. Right. Um, yeah, it's kind of just the plight of the hermit crab, um, the industry itself. And then it gets into Mary's story of captive breeding and the process of sending those babies out to their very first, you know, adoptions. And then you actually get to hear from adopters 
and their story. Um, you know, why they why they support this movement, um, what it's what it means to them, and kind of just how their you know baby hermit crabs are doing, what what differences they've noticed between wild caught and captive bred, and that sort of thing. Um, and so. So yeah, it was an interesting documentary to do because it was, of course, during COVID. I mean, we we're documenting all of that and collecting all of the video footage during COVID. And so it's all done over Zoom. Um, and so, you know, that was uh, difficult, but also interesting and historic for the times. So it's kind of neat to be able to have that little bit of history as well um, documented. And yeah, I mean, Faith is, she's talented and um so she put together a phenomenal documentary. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's it's very professional, and she leads into each thing. It, it looks like somebody who's made lots of documentaries before put it together because it's really well done. So I'll make sure it's in the show notes for people so they can go check it out and and learn more about that whole community of you guys because it's it's not just you. Like we said, it's Mary and there's a few others, and it's a, it's an amazing project. And I just love the energy that all the hermit crab keepers have because you're so motivated to make this work and you know, it, it couldn't get worse as far as the amount of work that you have to do. So it's, it's incredible. The, the amount of, uh, motivation, determination you all have to, to make this successful. Yeah. Thank you. I, I mean, you couldn't have said it any better than you did. I mean, this could not be possible without the many, many people for decades that have been collecting information and keeping crabs to figure out how we need to take care of them in a way where they actually do breed. I mean, that was the first step, you know, hermit crabs weren't being bred in captivity because they never, they weren't mating, they weren't breeding. So that meant we were missing something in their environment. Um, and so there's so many people that have been trying different things, documenting it and then sharing it um, so that we could get to the point where hermit crabs were actually breeding in captivity. And then of course, you know, um, Mary, who she definitely took information from people who, you know, had had success before her and kind of built off of their information and so forth. And so, yeah, now it's kind of a worldwide, not kind of, it is, it's a worldwide commitment. You know, like I said, I, um, Mary mentored me, but also Risky Pachanto from Indonesia. Um, and, you know, like I said, Sue was helping me from Australia, um, plenty of other people here in the States as well, but, you know, and a lot of encouragement from the whole community um, at the Land Hermit Crab Owner Society. So it's, it's definitely a, a whole community effort coming together, sharing, um, and encouraging each other to make it happen. So. Yeah, it's very evident. And that's exactly what I notice is the amount of encouragement from each party is, is pretty remarkable because we do not see that in every, you know, specialty animal and especially the reptile world. There's lots of infighting and, you know, you know, throwing names at each other. And it just, it's so nice to see a community that's all encouraging together and working towards an immensely hard project. So it's amazing. Again, congratulations on doing this successfully because it's uh, being, you know, one of the first people in the world basically to do this is amazing. Is there anything else that we didn't mention today that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? I think we covered everything. Um, I think so. I'm excited that we get to share this with everybody on the podcast because I know lots of people tuned in. And so, um, I hope that they're excited to hear about what's going on and, and I just thank you for the opportunity. 
Oh yeah, no problem. I'm happy to do it. And like I said, it is the most popular episode that I've ever done. So it's kind of funny. A reptile basically based podcast is the the episode about the crabs really took the show because it is such an incredible story. It's a remarkable story. And there's so much to learn from it that people can pull from in their own animal keeping, whether they're keeping crabs or not. Can you let everybody know where they can find more information about yourself and Crab Central Station online? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have our YouTube channel, um, Crab Central Station on YouTube. We also have a website, www.crabcentralstation.com. Uh, we also have TikTok, Crab Central Station, Instagram, Crab Central Station, and Facebook, Crab Central Station. So if you just Crab Central Station and Google, you, you pretty much can find us. And um, we do some different stuff on the different platforms, but you know, obviously all of our care videos, the vlogs on our breeding attempt is all on our YouTube channel, um, which is also linked, of course, to our website. So either of those places is a great place to start. Awesome. And, you know, in a year or two, maybe the, some of the listeners can actually adopt some of the crabs from from the own, your, your home, from Crab Central Station yourself. That would be amazing. That's the goal. Well, I, maybe we'll have to do another update in a year or so because I'm sure by then you'll have some more success. And so anyway, until then, Darcy, thank you so much for sharing your story. I do really appreciate it. I know it's it's, it's a remarkable and exciting and interesting. And also, I'm just every time I speak to you, I'm just blown away at the amount of work that you and your daughters are doing to make this work. So thank you so much for joining me again. Absolutely. Appreciate it. It's been great. Good talking with you. All right, that is the end of that episode. Darcy, thank you so much for joining me again and telling your incredible story. Like I said in the intro, every time I talk to you, I'm just completely mind blown at the amount of work that you do, you and your daughters do to make this successful. It seems like every step of that process gets more and more tedious and more and more difficult. So it is a testament to your dedication, the fact that you guys have stayed on top of it and actually learned through all those failures and actually had a successful breeding is amazing. I love the story. I can't wait to have you on again. I'm sure we'll have to do another one in the future. So good luck for listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Let us know in the comments, how incredible is this story? If you are interested in learning more about captive hermit crab breeding, make sure you go check out their channel, Crab Central Station. If you enjoy this podcast, share it on social media. Facebook, Instagram is really the easiest way to share it. That way we can find new listeners to the show. If you are interested in learning more about the podcast, head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you'll find show notes for all the episodes that have been recorded. And if you are interested in joining us on Patreon for as little as $3 a month, you can do that at Animals at Home. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Animals at Home. And finally, thank you so much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And I think that is it. I will see you guys very, very soon.